Chapter 11, Section 3 of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Almer and Louise Mott. Kutsov, to inspect the position, told the field marshal that it was impossible to fight there before Moscow and that they must retreat. Kutsov looked at him in silence. Give me your hand, said he, and turning it so as to feel the pulse, added, You are not well, my dear fellow. Think what you are saying. Kutsov could not yet admit the possibility of retreating beyond Moscow without a battle. On the Pokliny Hill, four miles from the Dormoglov gate of Moscow, Kutsov got out of his carriage and sat down on a bench by the roadside. A great crowd of generals gathered round him, and the Count Rostopin, who had come out from Moscow, joined them. This brilliant company separated into several groups who all discussed the advantages and disadvantages of the position. The state of the army, the plan suggested, the situation of Moscow, and the military questions generally. Though they had not been summoned for the purpose, and though it was not so called, they all felt that this was really a council of war. The conversations all dealt with public questions. If anyone gave or asked for personal news, it was done in a whisper, and they immediately reverted to general matters. No jokes or laughter or smiles even were seen among all these men. They evidently all made an effort to hold themselves at the height of the situations demanded. And all these groups, while talking among themselves, tried to keep the near commander-in-chief, whose bench formed the center of the gathering, and to speak so that he might overhear them. The commander-in-chief listened to what was being said and sometimes asked them to repeat their remarks, but did not himself take part in the conversations or express any opinion. After hearing what was being said by one or other of these groups, he generally turned away with an air of disappointment, as though they were not speaking of anything he wished to hear. Some discussed the positions that he had chosen, criticizing not the position himself so much as the mental capacity of those who had chosen it. Others argued that a mistake had been made earlier and that a battle should have been fought two days before. Others again spoke of the Battle of Salamaca, which was described by Crossard as a newly arrived Frenchman in a Spanish uniform. This Frenchman and one of the German princes serving with the Russian army were discussing the siege of Saragossa and considering the possibility of defending Moscow in a similar manner. Count Rostopin was telling a fourth group that he was prepared to die with the city's train band under the wall of the capital, but that he still could not help regretting having been left in ignorance of what was happening, and that he had known it sooner things would have been different. A fifth group, displaying the profundity of their strategic perceptions, discussed the directions the troops would now have to take. A sixth group was talking about absolute nonsense. Kutsov's expression grew more and more preoccupied and gloomy. From all this talk, he saw only one thing, that to defend Moscow was a physical impossibility. In the full meaning of these words, that is to say, so utterly impossible that if any senseless commander would have given orders to fight, confusion would result, but the battle would still not take place. It would not take place because the commanders not merely all recognized the position to be impossible, but in their conversations were only discussing what would happen after its inevitable abandonment. How could the commanders lead their troops to a field of battle they considered impossible to hold? The lower grade officers and even the soldiers, who to reason, also considered the position impossible and therefore could not go to fight, fully convinced as they were of defeat. If Bensigan insisted on the position being defended and others still discussed it, the question was no longer important in itself, but only as a pretext for disputes and intrigue. This Kutsov knew well.
Bennigsen, who had chosen this position, warmly displayed his Russian patriotism. Kutsov could not listen to this without wincing. By insisting that Moscow must be defended, his aim was as clear as daylight to Kutsov. If the defenses failed to throw the blame on Kutsov, who had brought the army as far as the Sparrow Hills without giving battle, if it succeeded to claim the success as its own, or if battle were not given to clear himself of the crime of abandoning Moscow. But this intrigue did not occupy the old man's mind. One terrible question absorbed him, and to that question he heard no reply from anyone. The question for him now was, have I really allowed Napoleon to reach Moscow? And when did I do so? When was it decided? <laughs> Can it have been yesterday when I ordered Platov to retreat, or was it in the evening before, when I had that nap and told Bensigan to issue orders? Or was it earlier still, when my... When was this terrible affair decided? <laughs> Moscow must be dependent. The army must retreat, and the order to do so must be given. To give that terrible order seemed to him equivalent to resigning the command of the army. And not only did he love power, to which he was accustomed, the honors awarded to Prince Przovsky, under whom he was served in Turkey, galled him. But he was convinced that he was destined to save Russia, and that that was why, against the Emperor's wishes, by the will of the people, he had been chosen commander-in-chief. He was convinced that he alone could maintain command of the army in these difficult circumstances, and that in all the world he alone could encounter the invincible Napoleon without fear. And he was horrified at the thought of the orders he had to issue. But something had to be decided. And these conversations around him, with which were assuming to free a character, must be stopped. He called the most important generals to him. My head, be it good or bad, must depend on itself, said he, rising from the bench. And he rose to Philly with his carriages were waiting. End of chapter 11, section 3. Recorded by John Ellis.